the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion on Baudrillard's Symbolic Exchange and Death, Chapter 3, which is about fashion or the enchanting spectacle of the code, drop us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you can't drop a buck a month, then send us a... Yeah, send us a review so just, on iTunes because some yeah. asshole, some asshole gave us like a, a one star or like a three star the other day. For the longest time, it was at five, and now we're at four point eight or some shit because of two assholes. So the first two editions of the symbolic exchange conversations we've had, symbolic exchange of death, I should say, you've said that you've you've found it frustrating. This time around, the third time has been the charm. It seems maybe we could have you start out with talking about why that is, or I think I'm embracing the frustration. You know what I mean? Like I'm, in, I'm embracing the fact that this is new material for me. This is quote unquote, the mature Baudrillard. Or, uh, doesn't he say somewhere that this is like one of the, the last real books he wrote or that was appreciated or some shit? Huh? No, Did, I hadn't. That, have we talk, I thought we had. In any case, you know, after this, he five years later in 81, he writes Simulacra and Simulation or Simulation and Simulacra. And that's the book he's like best known for. And a right. lot of the other books he writes are very short. So this is like one of his mature elaborations. And uh, I say mature in a, not in a sense of like an old sense, but in the sense of which like, you know, he's, he's trying to develop this thesis yeah. and I don't yeah. really know what it is yet, but except for like the, the terrorism of the code and shit like that. Right. Um, which I think is going to be a big focus. Honestly, today it's almost you know, fashion and the code have, that's the predominant mode of the conversation today, aside from a few details yes. here and there. The thesis developing about the code, which we've talked about a little bit, but which I still think maybe he assumes we understand what he means by that. And the, the way that I try to think about the code as he's using it is what he points to in the very first pages, I think of chapter one, when he turns to Saussure and says, linguistics or semiology, as Bart calls it, right, begins to focus. Well, semiotics or semiology? Semiology is what Bart calls it. Remember, Guattari... That's what Guattari said, use semiology, and Bart, semiotics. Mm-mm. No? No, uh, Charles Sanders Hearst develops what he calls semiotics, and Guattari says, well, you know, I'm going to make the same kind of arbitrary distinction that Bart does when he calls the science of signs semiology. For Guattari, semiology is on one side focused mainly on linguistic sign systems. Okay. And for Guattari, semiotics would be interested in the A-signifying. intensive, a signifying, right. Gotcha. Right. Anyway, 
it's like Baudrillard's, I guess code is code word for when values are hyper-focused on the play of signifiers amongst themselves, right? The, the distinctive oppositions of signs, signs don't mean anything by themselves in and of themselves, only in an opposition right. or distinction from other signs or other signifiers, really. And it's, and also you, you see him in this chapter, he's kind of thinking back to a lot of his argument in the mirror of production. The mirror of production is, starts with this kind of polemics against a fixation or fetishizing of production at the expense of, say, consumption, which is something that I think Bojar tries to bring more into relief. Right. For example, he has a little polemics against Deleuze for fetishizing production of the unconscious, which I think is, I don't think Baudrillard cares to like develop that thesis. I think he just, you know, it's obvious that it's obvious that Baudrillard doesn't give a shit about the fact that there are three syntheses and consumption is one of them, but you can see some of this in Marx. And I think his reading of Marx in that book is interesting. And so I feel like the more I read of the early Baudrillard, the less frustrated I get, the, the more the more I'm able to sit with my frustration and feel that it is useful. This is new stuff. And I think that if you're reading something new and you're not having some feeling of uncomfortableness or some feeling of that unsettles you from your complacency, then are, is, is anything new happening? I still think Baudrillard needs a hug <laughs> and like a blunt and a fruit cup, but because because there there are moments in, in in this chapter specifically where I'm like, all right, how is this not just pure fucking nihilism? Right. And I, I think that that's that's the thing. Baudrillard is confronting us with a certain form of nihilism. You know, the the interplay is where it's like, okay, is this is this coming from you or is this what you're saying? Modern culture, you know, confronts us with. Right. And, and, and I think that that's where. Baudrillard's almost like hyper cynicism. Yes. If you, if you will, is probably what I'm wrestling with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's pretty fair. It is interesting. I guess this uh, relative to the code, it's almost like the reverse of decoded flows. Like it's the reverse operation. Right. In terms of the way that capitalist overcoding that Baudrillard discusses the binary code of the flattening out of everything in a general equivalence. You're right. That, for Deleuze and Guattari, capitalism sort of unleashes decoded flows, whereas for Baudrillard, he almost wants to, it's not even saying the opposite because they're not using, when they say code, they're not even using yeah, the same. It's not a binary code, right? They're not even using the same conceptualizations. But, you know, for Baudrillard, capitalism is like the predominance of the code. Exactly. Um, if you remember when I, the text I sent you where I said, one of the things that I find interesting about Baudrillard is he wants to say positive conceptualizations of primitive cultures from our standpoint are is like an ethnocentric rewriting and like we're we're only gazing like narcissistically in a mirror of ourselves and projecting it onto primitive cultures and yet he takes from primitive cultures this difference and imposes the lack that we have onto modern culture. So he, it's like an asymmetrical move where primitive cultures can't be, obviously you don't want to be like a dumb Rousseauian and, and just be noble savage 
right? I mean, obviously that there's something problematic in that, but, but then to like look at modern culture or modern men as ignoble savages or something in light of primitive cultures, you see what I mean? Like you can't sugarcoat primitive cultures, but you can talk shit about your own culture and that's not ethnocentric, right? It's, that's one of the problems that I have sometimes reading Baudrillard is this, that cynicism that I was talking about, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like judging life as Nietzsche says in Twilight of the Idols, you know, you're, you can't be judge and jury and executioner and executed at the same time. You can't judge life from within life. Obviously you can't judge it outside of life either because, <laughs> yeah. you know, for other reasons, but, um, Ah, uh, you're but, living, see? Yeah. Yeah. You live in uh, society. You live, you live yeah. in society. We're on overcoating. Fashion is only a simulation of the innocence of becoming. That's a direct quote, right? Yeah, that's a direct quote. I just thought that was an interesting quote. You know, I mean, a and, simulation of the innocence of becoming. And this uh, is a Nietzschean concept, this notion of this struggle with the fact of becoming's innocence, right? Because this is why the transvaluation of all values is so important to Nietzsche, because, you know, with, you know, say like an ancient philosopher like Plato, becoming is always on the negative side of the binary, right? Being and becoming. Being is, is always what's, what's good, what's highest. It's what's real. Becoming is like an accident, to use Aristotle's term. And so the problem for Nietzsche is the fact that becoming drags all of being along with it. And this is why affirming the eternal return means affirming the whole, thereby restoring innocence to becoming. Looking at this little quote, because it's getting at, I couldn't remember if he said transvaluation or tra it's transmutation. So I was looking at this little quote to try to see if there was a, I couldn't remember if he'd used transmutation or transvaluation here relative to the binary logic of modernity. This is a good quote because it gets to some of what he means by code, right? So we should read this. For binary logic is the essence of modernity and it impels infinite differentiation and the dialectical effects of rupture. Modernity is not transmutation, but the commutation of all values their combination, and their ambiguity. Modernity is a code, and fashion is its emblem. You looked up commutation. The only reason why I even know the word is, I think, because of its use in symbolic logic and mathematics. Yes. Well, okay, it's also a juridical term. You can commute a sentence, but that's not what he's talking about. That's a different meaning. Now, looking at Merriam-Webster, I was thinking the second definition, replacement, specifically a substitution of one form of payment or charge for another. I was thinking perhaps that was what he was, the usage he was referring to here. And their example is a commutation by money payment for the exacted service. That seems to be the only one other than the first one being relative to exchange and trade. It's a logic of substitution rather than a logic of transformation. The act of substituting one thing for another, substitution, exchange. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Not the transmutation. Okay, so what is transmute, change? Yeah, it's, it's the, the word mute, mutate is, is change. Obviously, transmutation would be a much more radical form of change than commutation. You know, I mean, I think that that word commutation is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this notion of code as a question of substituting values almost in an indefinite indifference rather than, again, this is very Nietzsche in this question of the transmutation, the transvaluation of all values. That assumes a kind of activity, whereas Baudrillard with the hypersynicism that I was talking about, you know, commutation would, would be kind of indifferent 
to the evaluator, right? To the, to the Ubermensch who transvalues. It's interesting, right? I mean, like, you know, a Nietzschean eternal return where you affirm the differences and the extremes versus maybe a Baudrillardian eternal return where affirmation doesn't even come into question. Right. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's indifferent to you. Kind of like the real, right? Yeah. In terms of Lacan or Laura Well, it's, it's foreclosed to thought. What I like about this notion of fashion is, is and you have this in one of your, your bullet points, is this distinction of fashion and dress. Yeah. And I think that like in a normal everyday sense, fashion has that connotation of merely meaning. What does one wear? What, what one wears. Whereas, you know, like in Nietzsche's, Sometimes it's translated untimely meditation. Sometimes it's translated as unfashionable observations. And it's this question of the timeliness, the fashion, or as Baudrillard points out, literally the mode, right? I mean, that's all modernity means is it is, it is the mode, right? It's the, it is quote unquote in fashion. I forget who he quotes, but he quotes somebody, maybe it's not someone I recognize, but the, there was an awesome quote about... The fashion of thought, particularly philosophies, and how one assumes the the words and the verbal play, but not the line of inquiry. Maybe the word is inquiry that, yeah, and he says some stuff here about psychoanalysis, nor does psychoanalysis avoid the fate of fashion, right? So whether it's in vogue to be Lacanian or Jungian or Freudian or Reichian, right? I mean, right. these trends. And so... So the unconscious returns to its old habits as it is generally required to do. And psychoanalysis takes on social force just as the code does. And is followed by an extraordinary complexification of theories of the unconscious, all commutable and basically indifferent. I don't really agree with that. In my opinion, I think that certain, but uh, it's actually the, the next page. That's, that's, that's important. I was just going to say, I, I think that certain, um, certain complexes, certain, even like, vibes. Me, I don't think I would vibe with a Jungian analyst. I have a father-in-law who's a Jungian analyst. I already know that I wouldn't vibe with him, but I just think certain people would. Certain people would vibe with, with the Jungian type. Certain people would need an analyst who has like a, a, like a tough love transference, right? I don't know if that can all be rendered indifferent. I think that, that that's, that's important, right? To Like the Wolfman, you know, he, he went to Freud and got some stuff out of Freud. And it was later in his life that Freud's student, you know, he needed a, perhaps he needed a female analyst and some new shit came to light through that. Within language, the element subject of fashion is not the signification of discourse, but it's mimetic support. That is its rhythm, its tonality, its articulation and gesture. This is equally true of intellectual fashions, existentialism or structuralism. It is the vocabulary and not the inquiry that is taken on. Again, that's a highly cynical approach, <laughs> but that quote kind of crystallizes what people mean when they either describe themselves or others as, as suits, right? As, right. as pseudo-intellectuals. Yeah. Taking on the signs. That's the question, right? Uh, when we talk about, I think it's interesting right, where it's not even just the, he almost contradicts himself because it's not even the vocabulary itself that's the problem. It's the mode of exposition of the, of the vocabulary, right? It's that mode of mimicking a style. And, you know, this is, this is the question about. I only pretend to mimic. No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah. I'm being uh, smart ass. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, like, I'm just it's drawing like, on that, that Derrida quote that I just love about to do the thing I, pre 
I pretend not to do the thing or to right. do the thing or some shit. Or it's like the over-attentive waiter in being a nothingness, right? I mean, like you can't be the waiter. You can only pretend to be the waiter, you know. I wish I knew more about Leibniz and his God that he referred to. And we discussed a little bit in the, the binary the, the God. Second, yeah, yeah. The second chapter. Yeah. Because I feel like God. that might help with this binary code because I'm still not exactly on board with what he means other than maybe this move to flatten out everything into the code of either on or off. And maybe that has something to do with death as well, right? Because death is a binary logic of, because that's the whole structure of the binary code is electrical charge. No, yes. you're getting, getting down to the level of the transistor at the end yeah. of the day, things are getting translated into that binary or. And this is Lacan too, when he talks about the symbolic, right? He's open, closed. Like you were saying, it's positive, negative. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the binary. Yeah. I mean, Leibniz's book on, I think it's called The Odyssey. Didn't um, Le- Leibniz, Leibniz fucking, he was involved with calculus, right, as well? Isn't, he, it, isn't it a he, question of like even who invented calculus or like there's some dispute? He, he independently invented calculus. Gotcha. He and, he and Newton. And Deleuze goes into this in chapter four of Difference of Repetition, which is one of the most difficult chapters, but also amazingly beautiful. He reinvestigates the history of the history of the philosophy of mathematics, not all of it, but it's, it's based on the question of the differential and the uh, infinitesimal. And basically, Deleuze says that mathematicians ignored the infinitesimal or the problem of it by trying to say, well, it's, it's the infinitesimal, so it's like infinitely approaching zero, so we can just say it's zero. And Deleuze is like, no. Right. <laughs> you're, you're fucking up difference, right? I mean, so... Um, nice. Kind of but like yeah. Zeno's paradox almost, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. That, that's that's involved. Or at least the logic of it. Right. Sort of as and you approach the wall, it begin, yeah. I, if I'm virtually if I'm not, zero. Look, but look not, it up. Not really. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can never you can never reach the limit. If you right. if you keep halving the distance, yeah, etc. Yeah. The other interesting thing that Deleuze does with Leibniz in Difference Repetition is he opposes Leibniz's investigation of the infinitesimally small, the infinitely small. Uh, versus Hegel's meditations on the infinitely large, right? The the bad infinite and the good infinite, as Badu uh, himself talks about. Simon Don, for, for the same reason, opposes um, or juxtaposes Spinoza and Leibniz, you know, because for Simon Don, Spinoza, kind of like the Stoics, there's only one individual and it's substance, God, right? For Leibniz, everything's individual. So Simon Don's like, Neither of these works to think the individual. You fuck up the individual by, by making it either like the sum of all beings sum of or all the, sum, the sum of all things, or when you make everything individual. Like you can't think like th- these are the two extremes mm-hmm. uh, and, and there has to be like a, a way to navigate between, between them. Yeah. And it's kind of the, the opposition between the Stoics and the, and the uh, Epicureans. Right. For the Stoics, you know, you, you have this like great primal seminal fire, the cosmos from which all things emanate. And for the Epicureans, you know, Adams is where, where it's all happening. And the Kleinemann, you know, for Simon Dunn, this is kind of why Marx wrote his dissertation on the Epicureans. There's, there's a whole materialism there that's yeah. interesting that needs to be held on to, but that, yeah. that has to be kind of further enlightened with scientific investigation. Anyway, yeah, we were talking about the fucking Baudrillard and the code. With the binary logic stuff, you know, it makes sense that Leibniz would be referenced, right? Because he's he's a mathematical genius and 
the simplest kind of mathematical system is obviously a binary, binary logic system. Yeah, yeah. You know, we see what computers, for example, can do. They manipulate zeros and ones. We see what they're capable of. We see what they're capable of literally simulating, right? So, so maybe the code's not so bad. You know, I know the steak that I'm eating, right? Is I know the matrix is telling my brain the steak I'm eating is delicious. Yeah. Yes. I mean, sometimes you want to. But I don't care. Yeah. But I don't care. Right. Now, something that's interesting here too that I we can maybe pick up on and make a ticket departure, but that still rustles with something similar is he talks about modernity here. Now, one of the principal aspects of modernity that he discusses is going to be that what modernity does is sets up cycles of production via. Yes. And I guess the implication being through formalizing time, time zones, etc., as part of a way to organize production, supply chains, etc. Effectively, all the things that undergird the global economy relative to time and so forth. Because there has to be a general equivalency of time. Time is the fundamental general equivalency, I suppose, yes. that has to be instantiated first because effectively what is happening is the extraction of surplus time. What gets sort of interesting is there are these cycles of production. Okay, then also you see this cyclical nature of fashion as yes. well that follows this almost a death drive of it, that has its sort of own death drive because there is a spring, a fall fashion line, for example, and things come back into fashion. That's not the most astute point, right? That we haven't heard a million times or like you haven't observed in the world, but there is something interesting, I think, relative to eternal recurrence and re eternal recurrence desire and fashion relative to the re repetition of a slightly different, right? Because even the fashion trends that get recycled or recur are not, ex it's not exactly the same. There's a modification, right? right. Suits may resemble an older or like, I'm trying to think of a good example of where this would, would fit, but I, you have to get so deep into the aesthetics of something. Well, I mean, you it's, may it's, not be able to communicate it very well. Uh, verbally. I think you're. I think you're doing. I think you're doing great. I mean, you, you set you set up a lot of the the, the big points that that Baudrillard is talking about with the the recurrence of cycles, the the dead labor on which signification rests, the flotation of signs, and this way of exhibiting the retro and the uh, and the neo. Yeah, and everything the, and is the neo retro right. and neo concurrently. I mean, which I think is, you can see that in our what's right. more. <laughs> relevant now well, in particular, right? Especially the way that this process is intensified in the extreme relative to the era of mass communication. You can see in the like interplay between steampunk and cyberpunk, just ways of recycling the, uh, the retro and the neo. This is interesting when, when Baudrillard brings up, he quotes, he's quoting Vogue, I think. And he does quote Vogue, yeah. Which is kind of cool. He's quoting Vogue magazine. I assume maybe a, a French Vogue, and we're not told, but he brings up haute couture, right? Which is obviously literally the highest form of fashion because it's everything's handmade, right? Not mass produced. And the whole flavor of the Vogue quote is kind of like, is about f fashion flaunting the futility of utility. That futility is, is privileged above what, 
Beaujard considers to be the modern a modern principle of utility, right? There's something about yeah, fashions. Utility, yeah. yeah, there's something about fashion's indifference towards usefulness, which is why it exemplifies the the sort of um, indifferent flotation of signs. It, it exemplifies this principle of commutation in the code. What I like about this idea here is how he ties it to potlatch, particularly haute couture as the ultimate ultimate potlatch. The ultimate example of potlatch relative to fashion. And like I mentioned earlier, there is the whole cyclical nature of the fashion show and the fashion industry Mm -hmm. between fall, winter. And now, you know, that that keeps on expanding to like there's now there's pre-winter and pre-summer and like resort this proliferation of all these periodizations of release schedules for production that is really kind of tied to the older form of production whenever there was a more a more industrial society. Now we have presumably the technology where you could have a more on-demand style of production that's not so top-down driven. Mm-hmm. We were watching yesterday, and this is this is perfect. HBO has a new show called... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I haven't Hype? watched that yet. I think it's called Hype. Something like that, yeah. And basically it's like a Project Runway type show, but it's for streetwear. Street which I love. And, and which is a kind of... Which is what, what, What's nice is that it... It kind of exemplifies Baudrillard's, it crystallizes some of the stuff he says about graffiti and, but streetwear is now kind of, at least exemplified in this show, it's, it's avant-garde, it's, it's haute couture, everything is handmade, everything is singular. But what's cool is at the same time, there are these sewing machines that can be programmed Mm -hmm. such that you uh, make your singular streetwear design, but you program in all of the uh, modifications and the stitching patterns, blah, 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 so that it can be mass produced. It's kind of this interesting tension or simultaneity of singular production and mass production, which is why someone like, um, when I was reading this chapter, I kept thinking of Walter Bonyamin's essay on the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, right? So much of Baudrillard's, I call it nostalgia, even if he rails against it, is, mm-hmm. is seemingly this... I don't know if it's a lamentation or if it's just a confrontation with the fact that the aura, quote unquote, around singular works of art, whether it be clothes or paintings or whatever, fashion itself, the aura is gone. And one of the things that that I saw in hype for the streetwear is the fact that so many of these articles of clothing had writing, lots of slogans and and phrases like a maximalist aesthetic yeah one of them was like art is war but some of them were like 20 30 words like fucking almost wall of text shit yeah and it it reminded me of try to remember his name this famous marxist historian might be thompson anyway he talks about the birth of modernity is is the death of marat by um, David. And what he argues is in the death of Marat, the painting, if you want, you can, you can pull it up. It's kind of cool. I think I know he's painting. You probably do. It's, it's pretty famous. He's got a piece of writing on it. And to understand yeah, yeah. the painting, you're kind of forced to read, so to speak, like the linguistic sign becomes predominant. And he considers this to be like this, this kind of 
indexical benchmark for the birth of modernity, as we call it. I saw that in the hype after the first episode or two, somebody, somebody first did it and like had a bunch of words and then, and then everyone else started doing it. They were like, oh, well, I see that the judges like this shit. So Mm -hmm. we're going to have a lot of writing on it. So, yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. I wonder what Bojer would do with that. I mean, I'm sure he would play with it, but it's it's this interesting thing where the linguistic sign becomes predominant in fashion, in dress. I think yeah. that that's something we could call it, whether it's postmodern or whatever you want to label it. The legibility of dress is interesting. Can you tease that out a little bit more? Yeah, so... I think that, you know, with what Baudrillard is talking about, how it's not, we're not talking about any longer a drifting of signs in relation right. to one another. Like right. one might say, the- yeah, and I think the drifting of signs is kind of maybe an allusion to like Lacan talking about the, the slipping yeah. of the signifier yeah, across the bar. Lacan or Derrida. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but the flotation, it's no longer, it's no longer anchored. Right. The drifting is like a tectonic metaphor. Yeah, exactly. There's almost. okay. But the flotation, it's, you know, it's not even there's no there's no anchor of support. There's just like an abyss. And I see the legibility of the the clothing of the street clothing in this kind of avant garde way. Uh, Well, it's it's avant garde. It's not because, you know, high fashion, you're not going to have. I mean, I could be wrong, but all the high fashion I've seen, that kind of writing would be considered gauche. Is that a good word for it? It'd be considered like yeah, a, yeah. I mean, I think lowbrow. Yeah, know? I think old. I think in the pre, like this trend of streetwear meeting luxury is something honestly yes. that Kanye West is in particular, but not only, but largely Kanye is sort of responsible almost solely for this avant-garde streetwear that you're talking about. This is my aesthetic, effectively. The streetwear meets luxury. I think that that so much of the kind of the trend for the past, what, 20, 30 years with like T-shirts, like Hot Topic popularized a lot of T-shirts with, with writing, you know, just random quirky messages. Yeah. And I, th- I think that, that that's what I was kind of seeing, that legibility of the T-shirt moving into other, as you said, this luxurious streetwear that along with it came the you know, the medium is the message shit, right? The message itself becomes preponderant over. Uh, yeah, the content or, is or irrelevant. At, or it becomes at least as elevated as the uh, as the dress itself. And so I think that that's something interesting. So it is kind of, it, to me, I see it as a kind of a counterattack against what Baudrillard is talking about with relation to the, the flotation of signs. I mean, like his whole point at the end of this chapter is about how power hates fashion, because right. it because it calls into question power's own signs. And so I see I see the the legibility of the of the luxurious streetwear, the writing as a way of anchoring signs or anchoring meaning, if you will, against the kind of abyss of meaning that the meaninglessness that that Beaujard sees in fashion. What about something like as banal as that's been talked about a thousand times as the Che Guevara T-shirt as a counterpoint? I, th- I think to what you're saying, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'd... The way I read that is in terms of capitalism's axiomatic, as DNG say, right? Um, in terms of its limit, whatever mm-hmm. seemingly threatens capitalism can eventually or potentially be 
reinscribed within the the limits right. of capitalism and marketed. Yeah. So, you know, the complete works of Marx and Engels doesn't threaten capitalism. It can market that. The, yeah, yeah. The Che Guevara T-shirt, it can right. it can market that. And in some ways it it knows that just by doing that, by 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 its allowance, it also depotentializes that threat as it markets it for consumption. One of the things that, that I disagree with uh, with Baudrillard is this notion that in Marx, maybe in, in certain thinkers, maybe there is a trend to analyze production and productivity as active versus consumption as passive. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if I if I see that throughout Marx. I'm thinking of like the introduction to the Grunrisse, even in Deleuze and Guattari, this notion that consumption is passive and production is active seems like a too easy of a binary yeah i guess that's that's the thing with baudrillard is sometimes i feel like well, did marx really get much into consumption well i feel like he had there is he is picking on something picking yeah, up no, on no. something that's occurring with modernity relative to i mean fashion is a great way to exemplify this because i think i even mentioned this last time the development of the consumer culture was yeah. not something that i think Marx could have anticipated, right? No, not like, necessarily. No, only with full-on modernity. With Baudrillard says this too: is this is when fashion is in, sort of invented along with modernity. Yeah, this cyclical thing is invented, and there's this sort of imagined beginning and end. Yeah, and his his main point being that once traditional hierarchies are are disestablished, are demolished, and once the differentiation of the classes is also kind of dismantled as well. That's when fashion comes into being. That's when fashion deterritorializes from dress or from costumery. We talked about this in chapter two, I think a little bit, right? Where he kind of anticipates this chapter yeah, yeah. with, with um, you know, how in the, I don't, I'm not sure if he references Goethe or whatever, but like how in like, you know, traditional folk tales or, even the traditional novel, you play at being royalty, right? You dress up like a prince. That's not fashion, right? You're trying to deceive and you're able to deceive. Now, you know, I don't know what the fuck you would do. You know, you, I don't know how you would. Well, you still see kind of this distinction because you'll have, you often see this as a polemic consumerism. It's usually the pejorative of the millennial or the whomever that has an iPhone, you'll see all of these diagrams and it's like expensive hat, shirt, shoes, et cetera. And then they show the billionaire and the billionaire is wearing jeans and a t-shirt and that, you know, a $50 yes. shirt versus et cetera. Right. So there is a bit of, which is classism. kind of funny because There's it's classism. An, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, a, it's interesting, this division because of on the one hand, <laughs> there's, it's the waste, it's the potlatch element that draws the that's kind of the logic behind this critique of the person that doesn't have that's not wealthy buying the 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 signs of wealth or the clothes or whatever to right. sort of seem as if they are right taking on those signs the every man well yeah. the, it's the reverse so it's they're mirrored so on one side you have the oftentimes it's the billionaire that tries to look more like a person of the people sometimes yes like that's yeah steve jobs with the black turtleneck and jeans and like sneakers right so he's not wearing an expensive suit 
or anything like that. He's not wearing his Rolex, right? He is trying to have this sort of egalitarian style of dress, even though he was one of you know the most wealthy people. It's like the anti-flaunting of wealth. It almost it's the only way to like you know calling attention to itself because, like you said, yeah, he's trying to dress like the everyman. Also, Bill Gates, billionaire, has a five dollar haircut. Looks like a fucking schlub. Yeah, you know. So you see this pretty frequently, right? You see the billionaire, even like Zuckerberg, right? With his, I think at one time it was like, at one time it was flip-flops and the mm-hmm. North Face yeah. fleece, you know, like whenever Facebook was first coming out. I don't know if that's so much the case anymore at this point, but at one time he did have the kind of distinctive like jeans and you know what I mean? That was kind of his day regare. So on, on the one side you have that, you know what I mean? There's a reaction to the potlatch the the wasteful element of of fashion in the context of the per, the hype beast or the fuck boy or these are like terms for right the person who is trying to flash yeah designer labels right there's a pejorative element to that not only so there's a pejorative sense for those outside of that community that are judging them based on that binary of that i gave of the billionaire and the the who the fuck boy or the the hype beast or whatever so on one side, you have that. On the other side, you have you have the potlatch, and that brings a distinction. But then like the billionaire is also trying to do something different. I don't, you know what I mean? They're trying to mimic the signs of the, of the everyday man. I don't know. There's a weird reflection there. And you know, when they talk about old money as well, old money was not, has the connotation of not having this conspicuous consumption element the yes. way that quote unquote new money does. Yeah, that's a great point. That's one of the key dynamics of of a novel like The Great Gatsby, right? This ostentatious flaunting of wealth, throwing the lavish parties, and in many cases, not even enjoying them, right? Having that singular desire for Daisy, but he can never, with all of that ostentatiousness, he can never simulate old money. Right. He's always nouveau riche. Yeah. Right. He's all, he's all, it's always the East West egg shit, which is a kind of question of territories and deterritorialization. Right. And, 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 and in that sense, right. I mean, like, I think less today, I guess, increasingly, at least in, in, in America and perhaps in the West, you're seeing less and less of this question of the, of the, you know, the, Oh, what's the word? I can't think of it. But the the old and the new money, like you were saying, that binary is is eroding, almost kind of passe, right? But perhaps in other cultures, you still see that. You probably still see that kind of thing. And it is a question of, as Baudrillard is saying, as a question of modernity, as a question of the acceleration of, well, the 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 acceleration of development, progress in terms of um, markets, in terms of you know, money, money making capital, all that shit. I like this quote again. I'm still looking at the boat quote. What is more anachronistic, more dream laden than a sailing ship? The fuck does that mean? Haute couture. It discourages the economist, takes up a stance contrary to productivity techniques. It is an affront to democratization. Based, I guess. As I was saying, now that's not so much true. If one's haute couture, one's singular productive techniques by hand can be replicated by these, I don't know, 
10, $20,000 machines, the interesting programming, the programmability of the sewing machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's part of the dominance of the code, right? You know, and it's kind of like Picasso by paint by numbers, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like this quote. It says, uh, we would like to see a functional squandering everywhere so as to bring about symbolic destruction. I think that's a pretty cool quote. But how do we do that? (laughs) That's the question, yeah. It is hard to acknowledge that the law of value extends well beyond the economic and that its true task today is the jurisdiction of all models. Wherever there are models, there is an imposition of the law of value repression by signs and the repression of signs by themselves. This is why there is a radical difference between the symbolic ritual and the signs of fashion. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, this is where I feel like we're, we're kind of entering the crescendo, the upsurge of Baudrillard's arc that he's taken us in this book. You know, I mean, in the first chapter at the end of it, he kind of said like, my sort of immediate spontaneous death is like the, the threat to the system that, that, that can shake it. Yeah. Um, and now it's this, it's this squandering of the functional, the squandering of, of utility or against utility that I suppose he's going to follow that logic. And which is why fashion is a, is a necessary detour as the, well, as, as the model for the instability of all signs it's a question, right? It's a question of, of it's almost beyond affirmative or negative in terms of fashion, right? It, it's, 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 this is the question where it's like, is Baudrillard merely simulating a nostalgia for this, this fantasied origin of where, where, where signs had stability and, you know, where deterritorialization was limited yeah. Is that only simulated? I mean, is, is that, you know, like, it's hard to say, which is why that, that paradox that I brought up earlier, right? It's, it's ethnocentric to sort of whitewash primitive cultures, but it's somehow okay to take, to like throw modern culture in relief and, and in negativity, right? I mean, like, I guess that's the thing, like, is, is the functional squandering Baudrillard's like positive moment? Yeah. I mean, is, is this a kind of latent or even patent anarchism? Hmm. Well, I wonder how this would be, what he would think about something like fast fashion, which I, and I don't know if that's a concept. Is that a concept you're familiar with? Are you familiar no. with like no. the concept of fast fashion or fast fashion retailers? It's oftentimes, you know, it's brands like Zara, brands like H&M, Forever 21, okay. where it's all predicated on being actually... It's funny. It's a simulated. They're simulations. They're knockoffs of okay. real, trendy couture style garments. Gotcha. And but they're the construction and the materials, etc., are done in a way so that one can purchase this trendy item with the expectation that this garment is only going to last for a season. So there's a certain. That's why they call it sort of fast fashion. It's kind of you can incorporate these trends that are hot in the fashion world at a lower price. And then the kind of expectation is there's a throwaway element to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the I th- construction, I th- the materials, all that it's not intended to last 
but you can still participate in this having this knockoff version of an expensive, a more expensive garment or style. Yeah, I, I think that that exemplifies exactly what Baudrillard's talking about. That's that's like that's the taking the 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 logic he sees in fashion to the extreme. Yeah, I, I think that that's great. Yeah, I think that's a nice. Is that sort uh, of doing what he's? I mean, isn't that is that not doing what he's talking about? But I don't think there's any. There doesn't well, seem to be any revolutionary. It's 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 that next level, right? Where you're participating in a certain trend by proxy, right? You're you're trying to pass right. as as participating in in the the latest trends, but without the. It's almost, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. I see this a lot with handbags. You see right. this a lot because they can be fucking expensive if they are legit. Right. But many of them pass. Many of them are my wife's favorite bags. It uh, used to be. They were knockoffs of like thousand dollar purses. Right. She likes those more because like she has a, she has one really nice legit purse mm-hmm. and that's like, that's like you break that out and, and you're, you're like, all right, this is some serious shit. We're, we're <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be a badass bitch today, but yeah. she doesn't use that every day. Right. right. She, there, there's something interesting about that with the knockoff bags where it is actually, it's passing off as the haute couture shit but it's actually for functional utility because if that bag gets ruined or gets used and beat up it doesn't matter so there's actually this counter tendency right of reintroducing functionality uh as you said because you can throw it away yeah. you can kind of you can waste it mm-hmm. but kind of functionally the functional utility is is the conspicuous consumption right right yes exactly uh, the and, and it's and it's obviously related to a kind of kind of classism right take on the signs of wealth or whatever. Presumably this still all goes back to all political Lacanian being libidinal element, yeah. right? Of I guess in the Lacanian sphere it'd be trying to trying to attract thinking that this is what the other desires. The other wants me to look like this. So I'm gonna buy it, like I'll do this. It's what Zizek talks about with the feminine. The masculine position wants to be the phallus, but the feminine wears the phallus. Right. Straps it on. I mean, and, and when 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 my wife gets it's usually other women, but they're like, oh, my God, that's such a beautiful bag. She's not like embarrassed or trying to lie. To right. She's like, oh, this is a fucking knockoff. You know, like it's it's almost like being proud of it and being like, yeah, you can you can have this, too. So in that sense, it's not necessarily. There's not necessarily like embarrassment that that it's almost there's almost like a little bit of joy that like, hey, yeah, I can I can get away with with this. Right. So what do you think about that aspect of about the model becoming the only system of reference? You touched on that a little bit before. I don't, did you have anything? I just think that his way of using his way of using model here is tied up with the way he's using code. And I'm not I'm still a little bit murky about the conceptualization yeah. because with with someone like Deleuze, when he's looking at Plato, in Plato, the model itself is the form. And Will said it well when we were talking about, when we were talking a few weeks ago, where it's this level of participation and Plato is, is trying to figure out who, which claimants are participating by rank. And, uh, and, and the idea is, is first and foremost that which participates primarily of itself, in and of itself. 
with Deleuze, you see is that like with the allegory of the cave and shit like that, it's this question of an ideal model, an ideal form, idea, whatever, and everything else is copies of it, which is why painting is the very low on Plato's scale because it's supposedly a reproduction or representation yeah. of an actual thing, which itself is already copying the ideal thing. So it's, it's like twice removed uh, in terms of participating in the real. Interesting. And Think, with, thinking about that in the yeah. context of the, the fast fashion to you was sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so with Deleuze, what he tries to do is, is say, you know, it's what needs to occur or what, what he tries to claim a, occurs with the overturning of Platonism is overturning the whole copy model uh, system itself. And this is the play of, this is the, the sort of mad wild becomings of simulacra that Plato tried to ward off. You know, it, it's like, it's like Medusa, the philosopher and the sophist, the only difference between them is that the philosopher stakes a claim on truth. Whereas the sophist does away with that or doesn't wager upon that, or in fact, wages war upon those, those claims. If you take Plato's side, yeah, the, flaw, the only thing standing between, you know, um, sort of truth and barbarism is, is the philosopher, right? He's like the heroic type. And Deleuze wants to kind of do away with that. So with Baudrillard, though, here talking about the model, I don't think he's necessarily, again, it's not speaking the same language or using the same word, but it's, it's, I don't think he's really, um, you know, he's not he could easily be doing this overturning of Platonism. And in fact, he's maybe doing it by proxy uh, inadvertently, but he's not necessarily concerned with this question of this Nietzschean question of how the true world finally became a fable. I think he's working through a different set of signifiers, right? Whatever you want to call them. And here model, I think is, it's hard to say. I mean, like when he talks about sexuality and the mannequin, right? For example, I see that as a as a kind of question of models. I think what he's trying to articulate is something that Guattari got into in, the, in his late late in his life, which is this question of meta modelization, hmm. right? And what Simon Dome would say: there is molding, right? Like molding a brick. There is modulation, which is kind of the other extreme where it's something that's infinitely moldable. Mm-hmm. And so never fully, never ever molded. And then in between is modeling, right? You know, you can think about the difference between a clay that's meant to be fired in a kiln and made, made into a brick versus a kind of modeling clay that has more plasticity right and um is is suited has different colloidal properties right is 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 more suitable to that kind of sculpting i think that 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 may be closer to what Baudrillard is talking about with models but this is one of the tricky things with Baudrillard, right i mean he's he's not necessarily going to hold our hand and define things right he's not going to sit down and always say like this is this here's the definition Right. He sets these terms out like the code. I, I feel like sometimes when he talks about the code and the terrorism, of the code, I feel like he kind of parodies himself 
Because I don't know what the, I, I don't, I don't always, the word code is a code word for him. It's just like, it's supposed to be this kind of catch-all. Mm-hmm. But again, that, that's part, part of a, but your first question about my frustration with Baudrillard. I thought that was kind of interesting in the, or to like think about this in the way that due to the cyclical nature of fashion and how these prior fashions are kind of updated throughout the years over and over again and reiterated upon. So in that sense, it's like, it's kind of like you're saying relative to Plato, the painting being a simulation of an already simulated thing. So the fast fashion is a simulation of an already simulated thing as well. Right. You see what I'm saying? Because due to the cyclical repetition with even within the hot couture world or whatever, right? That's already referencing a prior in addition right. to. I guess that, that that's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's helpful, I think, to talk about um, perhaps Baudrillard's levels of simulation. The precision, yeah. It's like the difference he makes between hot money and cool, cool money, right? You know, that this next level removed of simulation is, is kind of the hot... Well, would you call it hot fashion? Fast Bo- fashion. Fast fashion. Well, in Baudrillard's terms, it might be like cool, cool fashion, right? Um, in the sense in which it's 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 floating versus the the tectonic drift of, of fashion, right? It's because it's because it's that secondary move. Now, I don't remember if he does this here or not, but certainly later, at least by the time he's doing simulation and simulacra, it's the copy. It's about the copy of the real or the copy of the copy that's more original than the the real or something like that or that's more authentic than the the original the copy that's more authentic than the original yeah Which i mean goes that, back to the whole borges and the map yep. territory right that we discussed previously and that's how he starts uh simulation and simulacra correct yes by talking about the map and the territory right the map uh, exceeding the territory and leotard references it in libidinal economy you know you could I'm sure there are great books on Borges and modern philosophy because, you know, it's seemingly, especially for these, these French guys that we like, you know, Borges is, is so important. I think it's interesting here that too, that he says, hence the fate of, of the economics begins to emerge in the form of fashion, which is further down the route of general commutations than money and the economy. Well, he predicted that shit pretty well. If anything, one can say about Baudrillard, you can't say that he didn't understand have, how the world some, works, man. Or have some foresight into yeah. certain things. Right. Just because he talked about the Twin Towers, I'm not going to say that like he, he predicted that event. But, right. but like here with the question of money, I mean, in 76, I mean, were, was, was France still on a kind of gold standard? If I remember correctly, it was like in the 80s for America, but I could be totally wrong. No, it was 70s for America. Left the, in France, Italy left the gold standard in 36. Now, see, it was modified, though, because like in the U.S., you had the gold bugs and the silver rights or whatever the fuck. Controversy, mm-hmm. Right. Because they. Yeah, were, it was fully severed, at least in the States. Nixon did. OK. Yeah, Nixon announced in 71 the U.S. would no longer convert dollars to gold. So the standard was abandoned in a certain sense in the 30s. But by this point, 
it was like completely severed. I guess what Bojir is saying here about the fact that fashion already exemplifies this move outside a system of reference. Fashion already exemplifies the logic of the lack of reference, right? In terms of signs. What's kind of interesting here that the connection you can draw between the cyclical nature of fashion and capitalism is the cyclical nature of both, which I think is sort of interesting and definitely has ramifications. There's a certain, I don't know, there's a synthesis here of some type operating. Right. I also think what's, you know, kind of an interesting line of flight you can take to tie this to our contemporary world is how sort of relative to entrepreneurship or startup culture or the whole world of um, angel investing and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, is, right. Crowdfunding, fam- stuff like that. Are you familiar with Elizabeth Holmes and yeah. the company Theranos? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, we've watched the documentary. Um, gotcha. She and Zuckerberg are, would be a great pair. They are the most alien <laughs> in terms of facial affects. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting off topic but go on what, what was your thought about elizabeth holmes well just, so her just the just the fabrication and the, the yeah well the whole fa- the, the whole fabrication i mean that's an extreme case of what i'm sort of talking about yes. is how simulation is even beginning to it's creeping into the political economy right in this in this way because like there's no you know what i mean the sign the floating signs are deceptive or like you know what i mean there's a certain or i don't know maybe that's I no, could put I, a, per, perhaps uh, bracket that or something. I don't know. No, I think, that, note I, that. I think that's good. It's also um, what I was talking to you a little bit about with uh, catfishing, right? The, yes, the, yes, exactly. The, the show Catfish. Right. Precisely. Um, this notion of simulating, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of what the, the internet allows in a certain way is, is the ability the instantaneous ability or semi-instantaneous ability to become whatever we want. Right. And to perform identities in ways that aren't tied down to our facticity or whatever, you know, that kind of performance is, is, is somewhat liberating, even if it can eventually lead to hurting other people, manipulating stuff. But I think with, um, I think with the, with, Someone like Leotar, what's interesting about Leotar is that he shows that if capitalism is, is, is in crisis, if that's mm-hmm. its cyclical nature, yeah. Nietzsche shows that decadence of that values are in decadence. And for Leotar, it's about accelerating decadence. This is part of his evil period. So he may have, uh, you know, he may have disavowed this later mm-hmm. but you know this this question of the decadence of values i think is kind of tied here to what Baudrillard is trying to articulate in terms of in terms of fashion except that in a certain sense fashion is more cynical and nihilistic than even decadence itself because to a certain extent for leotard at least the acceleration of decadence is if it's cyclical in the sense of Nietzsche and eternal return, then it's kind of, I think, closer to Deleuze's notion of, a, of eternal return, which is sort of breaking the perfect circle. 
right? It's, it's the, it's the fact that values are selected out. Um, the extremes are the ones that return, <laughs> right? I mean, if difference is said to return, it is, it is like the same, but I think different. that kind of, yeah. It's I fucking mean, I galaxy brain shit. I know. I, I, the, I well, that well, I think there kind of may be a tie to the way that, you know, I was talking about how fat the trends in fashion, like even if it is, it's riffing on an earlier period of mm-hmm. something, right? So I'm trying to think, are you familiar with what broguing is on, on shoes? It's typically dress shoes or boots that have broguing. You, you know what it is. You just don't know it's called broguing. All these little holes, et cetera, in particular, the way that this is done, this shoe, you know, we're looking at an Allen Edmonds, like uh, not a loafer, it's an Oxford shoe. Uh, standard dress shoe, laced up dress shoe. Now it has the broguing, which is typically a wingtip. You see that. Now, the reason this style originally evolved, it had a function relative to England and in the countryside and bogs. So this, the holes in the shoes or the broguing would allow water to drain out. Ah, that makes sense. So it, at one time it, it has this meaning. And now it was originally just this kind of country thing that became now it's kind of a status symbol of broguing on shoes is like a looks fancy this is a perfect example of how fashion can the broguing is the example of the extreme that is repeated or whatever you know what right I'm saying? right right and the functionality ceased to be tied to it correct. right the, yes. re- the, the, the referential basis correct yes is gone what what we're left with is the aesthetic veneer right right yeah, I mean that that's that's a great example. Um, now that ties into Theranos in the sense, and now that's an extreme example because the whole, even the whole business, not even the business model, but the the product that they wanted to offer ended up being fake, right? Like they kind of fake. Yes. I guess that's the premise, right? For those that don't know, with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, it, is that it was this kind of drug. You know, I guess that that's kind of irrelevant, but basically, it's all that it was. It didn't work. Never the product never worked. I mean, the idea was with one drop of blood, you can run all of these these tests, right? For diseases, for afflictions, and and the the concept far outstripped the reality. They were selling the concept before they really had the technology. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And this same and okay, so this that same logic is happening. It's happening in fashion first. Now it is actually getting into the political economy. Obviously, that's an extreme example. Another example that's not quite the same, but is still getting to it in the sense of like Lyft and Uber that were never profitable. They did offer an actual service. So right? oh, yeah, yeah. they offer an actual service, but it's not profitable. And they can continue to be funded and so forth, right? But ultimately, the business model is is bullshit. It doesn't work at the end of the day, but they can keep on attracting investors and, and kind of like keeping the simulation going with injections of the real. And I'm being metaphorical there, obviously. But yeah, it's kind of like the same thing. Like it keeps this whole fake thing going because there's the potential if they can figure out profitability, then you know, obviously the reward is quite high. Oh, but yeah. it doesn't look like that's going to ever be the case. Even its own sort of form of potlatch relative to these angel investors that are dumping in billions and billions and subsidizing all these rides, et cetera. 
So it's a different form of simulation. It's not as intense as like the Elizabeth Holmes example, but you see what I'm saying, right? And this model is being repeated just like the early dot-com bubble, right? You could have books.com or something and make like pets.com, right? Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of this wild west element where nobody knows the values of this shit. So people will give you money just for like the most, for the potential of a huge payoff. So even companies and whole business models and all of that are being sort of simulated effectively now. And I'm wondering if he kind of, if that's sort of what he was getting at. This part also reminded me of redundancies of resonance for Guattari. Yeah. Because he talks about the light and the heavy signs, the light signs being something like fashion and the heavy signs being something like political economy. So something like fashion is always going to be out ahead of the heavier signs, political economy. But as you can see in my example with these companies, it is catching up to fashion. It's following the lead of fashion. So I guess there you would say, you know, political economy has a higher resonance of redundancy. Yeah. um, Or am I being cringe? It's it's, trying to shoehorn this. (laughs) Redundancies of resonance versus versus redundancies of interaction for, for Guattari. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. There's something about, you know, I think that what, what Baudrillard is interested in is the fact that for, I think with his cynicism, he sees fashion as, as you said, the, the, the light signs, and they're able to commutate right through the code and all of this mm-hmm. uh, in ways in which are highly exemplified by redundancies of resonance, which for Guattari usually refers to linguistic sign systems. I think where, where Guattari is interesting and, and perhaps more affirmative and less cynical is the fact that, you know, he sees beyond that and beneath it, what he's interested in with schizoanalysis, particularly in its second phase, is redundancies of interaction. And that's kind of where the machinic aspect comes in. That's where the diagrammatic aspect comes in. And I, I don't think Baudrillard is as hopeful as all that. Right. Um, yeah, definitely not. And I do think that, I guess we should say that Guattari is very critical of the postmodernists. And I think Baudrillard probably being the, the sort of king, I mean, of the post of the postmodernist that, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's lumped in as a post-structuralist, which he is right. He's not a structuralist, but he, I think he would be the most, if you think of postmodern, he would be a postmodern theorist. I mean, he's theorizing post-modernity. Right. In a way that Deleuze and Guattari are not. Well, I mean, I I, I guess that's the thing. I mean, like, it seems that Guattari wouldn't embrace that label of post. You know what I mean? He he seems to be taking an antagonistic, critical um, approach to, I feel like it's three ecologies, maybe, that he specifically calls out postmoderns. Yeah, and, and, and it's hard to say if, if Baudrillard's lumped in with that or not. We've talked a little bit about Baudrillard antagonizing his contemporaries, right. like Foucault, Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari. I mean, one of the aspect of, of post-structuralism is, you know, a reinterrogation of Marx, but also a reinterrogation of the unconscious. I mean, this is how this book ends purportedly is with this, what's the section called? I glanced at it the other day. Beyond the unconscious. The main point of that last paragraph 
itself is this reevaluation of Marxism and psychoanalysis. I think if anything ties together anti-Oedipus, libidinal economy, and symbolic exchange and death, it is that that crucial re-examination of Marxism and psychoanalysis. I think without that thread, you don't have, whether you call it postmodern philosophy or post-structuralism, I don't think you have that. And part of that legacy is definitely this, this grappling with the with someone like Saussure and Levi-Strauss, right? With structural anthropology on one side and structural linguistics on the other. I don't think the 20th century looks the same without how deeply, especially in France, those two thinkers, and obviously Lacan well, and, Nietzsche and his well. structuralism. Yes, I mean, for anti-Oedipus, Nietzsche is the crux. And I think for Baudrillard, you know, he's looking more at more uh, traditional sociologists like right. Mauss. Durkheim, yeah. Durkheim, yeah. I mean, I think that calling Baudrillard a philosopher to core kind of hides the fact that his tradition and who he's drawing from. I mean, just think we talked about his doctrinal, uh, his dissertation committee, right? Yeah. Lefebvre, Bart, and Bourdieu. That line of flight that he's on, I think, is different yes. from, from someone like either Deleuze or Guattari, right? I mean, either the history of yeah. philosophy or the, the history of analysis, which is why when he says, like, you know, psychoanalysis is uh, sort of determines the unconscious in these trends and fashions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's an extremely cynical take that Guattari would, would vehemently disregard. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the way he starts off the machine unconscious is this this fact that with this new line of Lacanians, of which he is obviously a black sheep uh, <laughs> and an inheritor, you know, the unconscious is treated like a mathematical language with this ideal of information transmission. Right. That the mathing and the axiom combine. And for Guattari, he sees he sees the Lacanians as even more distasteful than the Freudians and the Jungians and the Reichians with their mythology, so to speak. So I don't think, I mean, for Guattari, you know, it's, he, he kind of continues Freud's uh, legacy of, he continues Lacan's legacy of, of, of a return to Freud. I mean, like mm-hmm. he himself says that in Three Ecologies, this, this question of renovating Freudism, that, that Freud's discovery, there is something to it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Baudrillard really has much, you know, with, with analysis, I don't think that he's, he thinks about it as Guattari does, which right. is that, yeah. which is that the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine have to be, have to be, have to collaborate with the, um, with the artistic machine, you know, and, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about this reading Baudrillard where when in Anti-Oedipus, they reject the mo- they, they reject the model of the unconscious as a theater, right? And propose a factory. And I think that what is perhaps not articulated overtly enough is the fact that they're not saying, they're not rejecting theater as an art form because what they reject is Freud's classical theater with its representationalism versus say like Artaud's theater or they say like even during Freud's time, he could have, he could have leaned on the avant-garde theater with like 
Vedekind or, or, or maybe early Brecht. I have to look, but you know, but he's, he's, he's relying on Sophocles, right. And, and Goethe and, it's the Hamletian Oedipal theater that they reject, not the kind of avant-garde theater where, where I think meaning is, is less important. Right. So I guess that's the same thing with, with, with Baudrillard is, is like this question of, I don't know. I mean, like when he talks about the unmooring of the signifier from the signified, and he talks about like the meaninglessness of fashion as I said earlier, I know he rejects a certain nostalgia, but it still seems like he's simulating a kind of nostalgia. Yeah. And I'm not sure I, I haven't, I haven't finished the book yet. So I'm, I am very like anticipatory uh, to see, you know, I, I mean, fuck it. Like if we're, you know, we're going to finish the book. I want to see Baudrillard get darker. I want to oh, see yeah. him. I mean, I want to see him be more cynical, more bring it on. Come on. With let's, the final chapter on debt. Well, no, the fifth God. chapter is on death. Okay, so the fifth chapter is the one where he'll get it gets pretty pretty dark, I think. And then there's the extermination of the name of God, which you know that sounds juicy. I'm looking. For yeah, as a rejoinder to my uh, name of God's the first thing that gets simulated. Yeah, well, like here in this, what's this quote? You mean to read it, or do you want to read it? Where does it start? In fashion, as in the code, signifieds come unthreaded, and the parades of the signifier no longer lead anywhere. The signifier signified distinction is erased as in sexual difference where gender becomes so many distinctive oppositions and something like an immense fetishism bound up with an intense pleasure and an exceptional desolation takes hold a pure and fascinating manipulation coupled with the despair of radical indeterminacy. Fundamentally fashion imposes on us the rupture of an imaginary order that of a referential reason in all its guises. And if we are able to enjoy the dismantling or stripping of reason, enjoy the liquidation of meaning, particularly at the level of our body, hence the affinity of clothing and fashion, enjoy this endless finality of fashion. We also suffer profoundly from the corruption of rationality it implies as reason crumbles under the blow of the pure and simple alternation of signs. Now, see, to me, it's this last line that's the most important here, reason crumbling under the blow a pure and simple alternation of signs, because I think you see this principle operating particularly relative to political economy in the United States as the really good example of how this shit works. Because it's all about these floating signs of the Republicans accuse Biden of being a communist or a socialist. The Democrats accuse the Republicans of being fascists or Nazis. And it all stays at, at this level of simulation of a simulated political economy where any kind of reasoning or anything like that becomes kind of whatever, because there's no referent. So then it becomes about the signs of whatever. So I'm on this team, so I'm against vaccines or I'm on this team. So I'm against ivermectin or whatever, as an example, but without really interrogating the reason, it's not about reason. It's about it's about signs. It's about the surface level equivalency of all signs and there not being any kind of referent to draw to. There can be a certain level of indeterminacy in anything. And as indeterminacy proliferates, entropy proliferates, I think. And I think that's not what he's getting at is the, the, more, si the more signs proliferate, the higher think, entropy yeah. increases, then systems break down and crumble. 
see, effectively see, I, is kind of what he's maybe getting at. I say go further into indeterminacy. Come well, I mean, yeah, that's the that's you right. know, and I think that what he leaves out here, though, he intimates it when he says that power hates fashion because yeah. fashion calls into question all signs, including power's own. And I think that what he could add is that with the acceleration of this process of indeterminacy simulation, whatever the fuck you want to call it, is is something that Guattari is very sensitive to, for example, he's not the only one, but this example, which is there is a concomitant, uh, I said the fucking word, there is the, <laughs> uh, there is a contemporaneous backlash yes. and a, a rise in fundamentalisms of all kinds yeah. to, which, reestablish, this, yes. to reestablish and, territoriality and referentiality, right? Yes, yes, yes. And that's very well tying into this too, yeah. Including, but not limited to things like gender, which we see is, is one of the cultural touchstones. Yeah. You know, we, we could talk about the, the progress we've made considering in our lifetimes, which is immense, but you, you do see a huge backlash. You know, we can say it's reactionary, conservative, but it's not only limited to, to Republican, Democrat. It's this question of, you know, when he talks about, I'm not sure who he who he quotes, but Judy, who writes about the the signifier is hermaphroditic, which sounds like a pretty fucking cool essay yeah. to quote from. But when he talks about like gender becomes so many distinctive oppositions, something like an immense blah blah blah, even that's kind of breaking down. On the one hand, that's that's kind of flawed against, but on the other hand, you have, you know, you have like turfs. You still have the reactionary position, which is which intensifies at the same time or sometimes at the same pace, sometimes outstripping it where the gender is, is like, is that which has to be implanted on the body. It has to signify, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And specific, I mean, Guattari relates this to, this is part of the re-territorializing effect of faciality, right? The face is supposed to, in the capitalistic machine, it's supposed to like answer these binaries. Yes. No man, woman, old, young, you know, all these different binaries. And, and I think that like you see this backlash and this demand for, well, like to, to wear the phallus, right. Instead of wearing the phallus, it's like the phallus has to be displayed at all times. Yeah. Whereas for Lacan, right. It's, it's the asymmetrical lack that Deleuze and Guattari, you know, talk about, right. Nobody, Nobody has the phallus, but that's precisely the demand to like, to like show and to, to answer definitively. Yes, no, man, woman, that kind of shit. This is why I say like more indeterminacy, right? Because right. that indeterminacy is precisely a threat to a certain type of power. It doesn't have to be the power of the state, right? It's, it's a majoritarian power, which demands for clear cut answers. And I think that that's part of Baudrillard's merit is to coolly and objectively kind of say like, yeah, I mean, shit is, you know, values are literally floating over an abyss. We still haven't gotten into a point and we've only gotten hints of what needs to happen to resurrect the symbolic that fashion, for example, and this flotation of signs undercuts. So, so how do we bring back the symbolic regime and this is why the, the one positive statement I could come up with was 
what was it? The squandering of the functional? Doesn't he say something like that? Yeah. The functional, functional squandering to bring about a symbolic destruction. Obviously, you know, you could bring up someone like Bataille and his question of the accursed chair, his question of waste expenditure without utility. I think that that's, that's obviously like a partner that, that has to be read uh, with with Baudrillard, right? I mean, like he does he quote Bataille in the first oh, chapter? He'll bring him up in Political Economy and Death. He'll bring up Bataille, so we have that to look forward to. He's mentioned in the intro, right? Okay, that's 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 must be what I'm thinking of. In chapter four, and then quite a bit in the rest of the book, it seems, particularly in chapter five and six. Now, a couple of things. One would be that. There's a quote here, or there's a passage, Baudrillard says, the Native American or the indigenous person, their whole body is the face. Did you, do you recall that? I marked that Guattari wouldn't have any of that shit. <laughs> Interesting. In, in the faciality plateau and in Guattari, I think he's specifically like quoting Clasters. Guattari's main thing is that the, the face is like a deterritorialized head and that in primitive societies, there was a polyvocality of the body that didn't require the, the face. So I think that Guattari would actually say the inverse of Baudrillard here. Basically, Guattari's point is that some systems, some regimes of science don't require a face. Interesting. I want to read this quote just because I think it's kind of interesting and to contextualize a bit. Another game is set up the opposition of dress and body, designation and censure, the same fracture as between the signifier and signified, the same play of displacement and allusion. Fashion, strictly speaking, begins with this partition of the body repressed and signified in an <coughs> elusive way. It puts an end to all the, in the simulation of nudity and nudity as the model of the simulation of the body. For the Indian, the whole body is a face that is a promise and a symbolic act, as opposed to nudity, which is only sexual instrumentality. I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm not I, sure. Uh, I guess focusing on this distinction between dress and fashion, perhaps, I don't know how to quite articulate that difference fully, but dress has, and this is where the primitive versus mod or like contemporary to becomes an issue perhaps oh yeah because yeah. dress one would assume would be in the quote unquote would be associated or connotes quote unquote primitive versus body or not body but um fashion fashion is a modern thing which is sort of true although is it though i'm trying to think of how potlat functions relative to the body you know because he does say that these there is a certain element at play relative to fashion and festival Yeah, in this excess because of the lack of, because of that indeterminacy, because of the waste of it, because it only, it only it's a so, sort of tautological thing, fashion. So in that sense, extending the face to the body or ex the whole face or the whole body acting as the face kind of does make sense in that model if you're trying to th if you're thinking about this in the context of 
natural, you know, in air quotes or whatever, or scare quotes. I, I also don't agree with this thing about nudity is, is sexual instrumentality. You see in many cultures, the lack thereof of, of dress itself as part of the mode mm-hmm. and part of the fashion, you know, just think of national geographic when you were a kid and sneaking a peek at, you know, some at, at the breasts of, of whether it be, you know, um, South American natives or Aboriginal natives or even certain African tribes and the, the body isn't covered like it is say, you know, with burkas or so that question of, of nudity in those cultures would not be sexual instrumentality. That's just the mode. Yeah. That, that's just us. That's just a standard. I mean, and part of that too is, is, is about the, even just the, the question of the climate, right. And the weather, the sort of mild climate where it's nice and sunny all the fucking time. Right. I mean, it's just that kind of statement. This is, this is where, Sometimes I feel like Baudrillard is is kind of like the classic shit poster because it's like you can get on Twitter and just like people can just say whatever the fuck they want. And sometimes I feel like Baudrillard just he can't. Keep, well, how does he keep getting away with this shit? Right. <laughs> he keeps he keeps just like throwing shit out there. I mean, it works within the way in which he's elaborating this logic. I'm just not sure if if I agree with a statement like that. In the end, it's like not everything stands or falls on that one statement. I mean, you're in agreement with the distinction between dress and, and fashion or no? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was just going to say, Guattari kind of talks about the face as dressing up subjective black holes. Right, okay. Right, and specifically the capitalist face, as I said, with its binary requirements. Maybe this next little section, this kind of goes further into this whole discussion of the body and, and, and sexuality. The new reality of the body is... Hidden sex is from the outset merged with the woman's body. The concealed body is feminine, not biologically, of course, rather mythologically. The conjunction of fashion and woman since the bourgeois Puritan era reveals that a double indexation, that of fashion on a hidden body, that of a woman on a repressed sex. This conjunction did not exist or not so much until the 18th century and not at all, of course, in ceremonial societies. And for us today, it is beginning to disappear. As for us, when the destiny of a hidden sex and the forbidden truth of the body arises, when fashion itself neutralizes the opposition between the body and dress, then the affinity of woman and fashion progressively diminishes. Fashion is generalized and becomes less and less the exclusive property of one sex or of one age. Be wary, for it is a matter neither of progress nor of liberation. I mean, the one thing that I can say is like, with dress specifically, you know, you see that the obvious majority of designers are almost exclusively making outfits for women. But you are seeing this less and less. I mean, the dominance is still there, obviously, but you are seeing more. You can just look at current runway shows, right? You, you are seeing more. I talk about high fashion, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, androgyny, you know, the proliferation of androgyny. Right. You see this even in cultural studies, like it's very rare 
like in like gender studies or whatever, there's tons of books on, on, on the, the female body and the male gaze, etc. But mm-hmm. there are only a few works on um, the male body. I think that's the title of the book, The Male Body. It's, um, I think it's by Susan Bordeaux. I'm trying to remember. But it's interesting, right? Because, you know, the stereotype is obviously that men aren't supposed to like necessarily concern themselves with fashion. He, he even cites the example of the dandy, right? Which... Yeah. Proves the point by way of exception. Mm-hmm. And you're going to read a quote. It made me think of this quote from Rick Owens. that was saying working out is modern couture. No outfit is going to make you look or feel as good as having a fit body. Buy less clothing and go to the gym instead. Chad shit. Body fascism. An interesting counterpoint relative yeah. to, I guess, the discussion of the male and female body as it pertains to sexuality and fashion and androgyny. Which I think is interesting because like I sort of like the androgynous. I wear skirts and shit. Yeah. And shit like that or things that mimic a dress or whatever. It has an appeal to me. The importation of the the kilt. Right. But yeah, go back to this quote. Let's look at it again. the, The end of it, particularly. Stereotypically, men are not supposed to like care about fashion. Right. You know, they're supposed to roll out of bed and put on some jeans and a shirt and not really give a shit about, about that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's a, that's an outdated stereotype already. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you've already said that you, you have a, an eye for it and a mind for it. I like my silly little t-shirts. Shout out to crit trip. For example, they make great, right. they make good shit, you know? So even the notion that men aren't supposed to care about fashion is, is one way of being fashionable. Right. Yes. You know, oh, that's and, good, good call. And I mean, you think of like a woman stripper at a, at a bachelor party wearing what a bikini or blah, blah, blah. But like with, with again, stereotypically with male strippers, what they, they come dressed as a cop or a fireman, fireman or yeah. some shit. So there's something here that if, if Baudrillard wanted this chapter to be a little bit longer about the question of outfits, there's still notions of like uniforms that are an extreme counterexample to fashion. Even if, you know, you can have differences in, in like the police uniform or the fire uniform, there's still, there's still a, a, a sense in which it's very recognizable and has a kind of stability. Perhaps it's, it's the counterexample of the, the heavy signs in fashion, right? That it's sort of somehow apart from or out of fashion, even though it, it's bound up with dress. And I guess part of it is because it's, a, it's, it's supposed to be immediately designatable and signifiable right it's supposed to read immediately like the uniform i just actually had this i thought about how the head coverings for for muslim women i forget what's just the head covering hijab is a headscarf so not the hijab the hijab speaking as a southern white boy is that what you were thinking of yeah so more like the he yeah the hijab um which is just the headscarf covering doesn't cover the actual doesn't obscure the actual face just the hair and so forth right right now you'll see some women that will wear a louis vuitton or some other maybe a gucci print headscarf oh wow yeah but the the rest of their outfit will be you know relatively traditional and you know in scare quotes but the the head covering will be like denoting a, a couture or hot couture or something right that's that's the show that's the show piece right right that's the 
oh wow there's like a billion different yeah which is kind of interesting but even see this even brings up an interesting question of is this dress or fashion relative to the burqa the niq the niqab the hijab etc like where do these fall that's where we could say that Baudrillard's own in many of his books, because of his sociological background and his critique of ethnography and these other things like we see in simulacrum and simulation, you could say that, that that's the ever-present danger of, of like a creeping ethnocentrism that everybody kind of has to deal with. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm not, because I, you know, I'm, it's um, not necessarily his place as a white French man to talk about all cultures as though they were like universally tappable. You just tap into wherever you want. That has its own ethnocentric problems. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like the, the functionality is bound up with certain repressive uh, forms of patriarchy, right? That, that we, that in the West is just a, a more subliminal form. It's not so overt. Yeah, right. I mean, even like quotes from, I forget who it was. I don't know if it was an imam or if it was a politician where it was basically like, basically he was talking about how all men should have beards precisely due to the fact that beardless men are androgynous and therefore can potentially like, corrupt heterosexual morals right <laughs> they that beardless men are and the greeks thought this too i mean like you know plato's a late plato old plato was a kind of counterexample of this but even the athenians you know their understanding and foucault goes into this very well with their notion of active male sexuality versus passive and a male two adult men together would have been considered immoral for Athenians, but the young boy needing the mentor, right? The teenage boy before he gets a beard, right? But he's like, he's already pubescent or whatever. That's okay, right? Because as a boy, you're you're able to be in that passive relationship. I forget who it is. Maybe Martha Nussbaum, who talks about Plato. He tried to convince the king, the tyrants, whatever, of Syracuse. He tried to convince him to adopt his philosophy, his philosopher king ideology. And it, it's theorized that like his there in Syracuse, it was it was morally okay for two men to uh to be openly romantic. And so Plato supposedly gets this kind of this more free liberal outlook towards homosexuality that would have been out of place in Athens. Precisely because of their binaries, right? And 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 part of what Baudrillard is thinking through is the like any good post-structuralist, right? He's thinking through the un- instability of of binaries, right? I mean, he talks about the terrorism of the code, but but he's also talking about at the same time these the instability of these fundamental values, right? And and I mean, in that sense, you can obviously think. I mean, he uses a word like deconstruction unproblematically. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's obvious that. If he's not directly influenced by Derrida, he's at least thinking oh, through yeah. some he's of these. Thinking through. He's thinking through some of these, yeah, these these classical Western problems. You know, the whole logocentrism and metaphysics of presence, blah blah blah. Right. So, 
That's kind of where I would go. And I'm still thinking through this thing about the body becomes a face because, you know, the veil itself, since we're talking about facial coverings, head coverings, I mean, the veil itself is an ancient form of dress, right? And so, you know, again, that kind of, I hate to just call them ethnocentric because, again, we're all, it's not a question of being like woke or something. But when he says like for the Indian, I, I don't know what he means, like, He's like bringing that out of left field. Even that term is is kind of problematic, but you know, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Any, any like final thoughts? Well, there's a bit about, so he, he talks about art as well. And so that was one thing just to kind of briefly mention is what is interesting. You can see in his critique of modernity and how it is flattening everything out into this general equivalency. And he uses a great example of the, the art museum because there's no the art museum will have its virtue is that it has all styles nothing is necessarily segregated outside of perhaps low art right but in terms of within the sphere of what is considered art you know high art etc right the museum places everything side by side right so that's kind of this great way of an example of how that flattening out occurs in the, the way that the art is displayed side by side. Now, to build off of that is something like the concept, or just to at least mention the concept of the NFT, which takes this whole notion of art even and simulation even further to like a deeper, more, more like alienated form outside of even just art. It's a simulation of a simulation of a simulation, right? Yeah, the... If we're taking, if we're picking it with Plato, right? So there's like an original, whatever form that's being bastardized. Firstly, with the the painting, and then now the painting is being simulated digitally, virtually. So it's even even further down the line abstraction. Right, and ownership think, ownership itself becomes a kind of free floating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, that's a good read on it for sure. I'm just building off what you're saying with the NFT. Yeah. I mean, ownership itself is a kind of virtual token yes. or you, you, you kind of have like a certificate of ownership, but that's, that's it. Right. Right. That's a great thing to kind of think about. Yeah. I, I like where you're going there as far as the, the ownership aspect, because what are you owning? Right. The certificate that says, you know what I mean? I don't know. That's, just it brings all these things kind of into a sharp relief as far as floating signs and, and whatnot, virtualization. To a certain extent, it is kind of also a, a retro effect, sort of resurrecting forms of patronage, right? We have a Patreon. That's kind of, you know, the ownership for like- This is why the like Neo- patron, yeah. This is why the Neo, that's a great example of where the Neo and the retro- Yeah. Aligning in the modern, or they're like both existing side by side within the modern, modern rather. Yes, so I definitely wanted to mention that just briefly. And again, to tap into that as well, like I think that movie F for Fake from Orson Welles has a lot of resonance there because of the, it's a fake documentary about a fake art forger that is sort of playing with the same questions about, you know, there within the film, one of the biggest points is that, and he makes this, I brought this up too, relative to the way that pollsters sort of creating their own feedback loops relative yes. to public opinion. Right. And so that same relationship occurring in the art market where museum directors and art dealers are the ones that are sort of creating the market and they will 
sort of project qualities into the piece, even if like they could say, like in the film, that's kind of one of the things where they take this art piece and they know that it's a fake and they take it to an art you know, gallery director. And he's like, oh, you can see this is a trademark of this. You can see the way that this line is done. This is a trademark of so-and-so style. He takes it to another museum director and they pick up on some other say. So these experts, quote unquote, are adding the legitimacy to the work of art and kind of reproducing this whole whatever miasma of the art market. Mm-hmm. You have a similar functionality, and Baudrillard discusses this within this chapter, of all of the people surrounding the, the fashion industry, right? You have the magazines, you have the reporters, right? You have all that that kind of keeps the thing going, the industry itself. And Baudrillard himself has an essay in For Critique of the Political Economy of the Sign, it's called the art auction, sign exchange, and sanctuary value. So that could be for further reading. We also, the or- conspiracy of art. That's one of his books, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think will go like it picks up on a lot of these themes a little bit and runs with them a bit further. But I don't know. I think that kind of wrapped up everything that we kind of touched on all the main key highlights of kind of where I wanted to go today. Well, we are going to continue our discussion discussion of all the thinkers we've been reading by turning to society against the state next week pierre clasters or is it calastres as uh, as will said <laughs> no i think it's i think it's like i think it's like closter it's like sorry right yeah oh, okay gotcha yeah that makes sense fucking french this will be the machine gun conscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins see y'all next week